we find the unit and it goes dead silent, literally from these blood curling screams to just eerie silence. And we didn't see anybody outside at all. No other noises, no other sounds. And we're announcing ourselves, you know, please come out, show us your hands. And there's nothing, no movement inside the house. We don't hear any noises. My partner notices a huge window, a louvered window the size of a door, and it's completely shattered into the condominium. And so we again announce ourselves and we've got to get in there. We don't know what's happening with this couple. We have to try to save their life. And so we go in. Today's guest began his law enforcement career in the United States Air Force as a security force officer, where he remained for six and a half years. Immediately after the Air Force, he was hired by the Walnut Creek Police Department, and in 2014, he was awarded the Walnut Creek Distinguished Service Medal for his heroic and life-saving actions during a fatal officer-involved shooting two years earlier. However, the family sued, and what followed was a four-and-a-half-year civil court battle and a personal internal war against PTSI. Episode 88, Michael Subaru. Welcome to One Moment Please, the podcast where our guests take a moment to tell their stories of how they've overcome adversity to achieve success, and you take a moment to tune in to bring on the inspiration. Hi, Michael. I'm excited for you to join the podcast. Thanks for having me on. Well, we got put in contact with... Um, with another podcaster, Tiffany. So thanks, Tiff, for the for the connection in regards to uh, connecting us. But you've written a book, Relentless Courage, Winning the Battle Against uh, Frontline Trauma, and it's about, I suppose, all your, tra- <laughs> your trauma and PTSI. You co-wrote it with a – she a psychiatrist or psychologist? Uh, she's a clinical psychologist. Okay. Um, so we'll get in around how that came about because I'm excited to, to talk about that. But I really want to talk about your childhood because you went from military and then to the police force as well. So I'm interested about what shapes people and wanting to um, delve into those careers. So talk to me about your childhood and, and why you sort of wanted to go into the military. Yeah. So um, I had a pretty good childhood. I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area in California, and my parents, they got divorced actually when I was around eight years old. And my stepfather, uh, my mom got remarried a couple years after my mother and father separated. And he, though, had known me my entire life. And he is really the sole reason why I went into law enforcement. He was, at the time, a police officer and then police sergeant for a police department here, also in the San Francisco Bay Area. And at the young age, actually of eight years old, I became a police volunteer for the Sausalito Police Department. And, you know, for me, it was a really big deal because I got a actual official ID card. They laminated back then. But in reality, I was just filing papers. I was washing cars. The big highlight was riding with McGruff every year in the annual parade. But that's where I really saw the camaraderie, the family, um, the excitement. Just I knew then at that moment that this is what I want to be part of and carry that forward through my high school years. Uh, my father actually switched police departments and he worked in Richmond, which was at the time one of the most dangerous cities in the whole of the United States and wow. also California. And he was a homicide detective. He used to come to my uh, criminal justice class 
in high school and he would bring some of the cases that he had worked on as a homicide investigator and i also became a police explorer for the richmond police department and so that's where i what actually got a uniform day? so a police explorer is a volunteer position and typically here in the united states it's open to like 15 to 21 year olds and it, you usually have a meeting once a week uh, we went through like a little mini police academy, which I did on a naval base in San Diego. And in addition to that, the big perk of the job is you get to do ride-alongs where you're actually riding with full-time police officers in the passenger seat. And you're seeing firsthand what police officers do on a daily basis. So you're going to calls with them, you know, when they're pulling people over, anything and everything that they do, you are there for that. And then we did other things like worked parking enforcement, um, parking control for different events that went on throughout the city. But really it was, I mean, my first kind of real, I guess, participation in, in law enforcement and just having that badge, having that uniform and, and again, being part of something bigger. And so my plans did change though. My original plan was to go into the FBI after college and back then you needed, of course, a four-year degree minimum and you needed some real life work experience. And so I made the decision that I was going to look into a scholarship through the military. And I actually first went through the army. I went through the full army officer course and they weren't going to offer me much money for college. So actually I looked into the Air Force and they offered me a full scholarship. So I jumped at the opportunity and I got my degree in criminal justice at California State University, Sacramento. And when I graduated in 1998, I was commissioned a second lieutenant in the United States Air Force. And I got my first selection of career choices, which was security forces. And security forces is basically law enforcement, air-based ground defense, anti-terrorism, force protection. And that's where I started my professional career in law enforcement. It's a very broad um, scope from law enforcement to. I was reading it was law enforcement, global force protection, anti-terrorism, nuclear security, foreign airfield assessment, air base, ground defense. It's very broad. <laughs> it is, and and that's the thing is that we're basically security forces is considered like the infantry army of the air force. So you know we're responsible for guarding and protecting all the air force bases, not just here in the United States but any bases overseas and hostile zones. And there's a whole other component that goes along with that. But within the bases here in the United States, we also have a regular law enforcement mission because people live on the bases, people work, you know, there's businesses, um, there's people driving cars. So there's traffic enforcement, there's accidents. And in addition to that, I did work in, in nuclear missiles where I was actually out there protecting the ICBM sites where the missiles launch out of the ground in both Wyoming and Nebraska. So I, I have done quite a lot in the military. I served six and a half years active duty. And during that time, I was in the Middle East. I was in South America. I was all over Europe and all over the United States. So I, I do actually have a, quite a vast background of experience in, in the U.S. military. Did you enjoy it? Because you got out at six and a half years. What made you get out? So my original plan actually was only four years because that's what my commitment was because I wanted to do my time. You know, I had to work off my scholarship and I was going to go into the FBI. And this is where things changed. 
And the first thing that changed was they offered me a chance to live in Germany. And so I wasn't going to turn that down. And by taking that assignment, it actually extended my time commitment that I owed to the United States Air Force. And when I was in Germany, shortly after I got there, that's when 9-11 happened. And that's where I was sent to the Middle East. And so, you know, during my time in the Air Force, I did work with different federal agencies like the FBI, the DEA, the U.S. Marshals. And I realized that that really wasn't what I wanted to do. My ultimate goal had changed and I wanted to come back to California and be a police officer in uniform, you know, driving a patrol car out there every single day, interacting with people, going to calls. And so after I left Germany, I got assigned back to California at Travis Air Force Base, which is just outside the San Francisco Bay Area. And during that last year in the Air Force, I started applying to different police agencies here in California. And that's when I got hired by the Walnut Creek Police Department in 2004. And Walnut Creek, because I'm sure most listeners don't know where that is, but it's about no. 15 minutes outside of San Francisco. So it's, it's very close to San Francisco. Okay. So I would imagine quite a busy department then in terms of call outs. So the city I worked in was actually a nicer upscale city, uh, but there was a lot of people that commuted through the city and went there to work. Uh, But I would generally say it was more of a a safer city to live in. Um, It was known for destination shopping, dining, like night entertainment, nightclubs, those types of things. So there was a lot that went on. But it wasn't considered like a very dangerous city um, like Richmond where my father worked. When you were um, – when you entered the police force, I know that obviously you've got a bit of an insight through your dad and th- as a kid what you were doing in terms of the um, volunteer aspect of things. But what do you think the perception is against the, the public – and I try not to get too political because I know there's a huge political issue at the moment over there. Um, but what do you think the the perception is in terms of the public, what they think the police force role and duties and what it's like to be on the force compared to you being in the role and the reality of it? You know, there has been a lot out there as far as divide and anti-law enforcement sentiment. But the reality is I think that most Americans truly appreciate law enforcement. I think if you look at most cities – Especially now, um, across the United States, we're dealing with a crime epidemic where homicides are way up, property crimes, robberies are on the rise, and people are actually fed up of the crime. And so, was that I from the defund me movement? Do you think it's from the cutting of the, or is that just an, uh, an evolution that was always going to happen? You know, that, that did happen, and there was a movement for that, but I think people are realizing that that was a big mistake because. Defunding law enforcement is the last thing that we need to do. I mean, Mm. if anything, we need to better train and educate our law enforcement and provide more resources. But that movement, it's affected a lot of different agencies. And now all agencies across the United States are understaffed and they're hurting because for people, because a lot of people do not want to do the job anymore. You know, they don't want to take on the risk and the scrutiny because now – You know, like in my case, in my example, and I'm sure we'll get to this, but I was involved in a fatal shooting where a man with a butcher knife was trying to kill a couple. And it was a justified shooting. We had two victims and witnesses that survived, you know, but even given that I was sued. I went through four years of a federal lawsuit where 
every microsecond of my decision that night was scrutinized and analyzed over four years. And literally everything was on the line when I was sitting there in the courtroom in San Francisco. And that was a completely justified shooting. So when you look at that on top of the trauma and the stress that we endure as first responders, Mm. you know, it's unlike anything else. I mean, it truly is. And for me, it was a calling. This wasn't just a job. This wasn't just something where I opened up a, a job ad one day and said, oh, that sounds pretty cool. Let me go try that. You know, as I mentioned before, as a young child, this is something that I aspired to do. And I felt a higher purpose, a higher calling. And I think that most people that go into law enforcement truly want to make a difference for their communities. You know, they're they're willing to leave their own family and loved ones every single day knowing that they may not come home, that they may be killed in the line of duty. And we're willing to do that. You know, and not too many people that I know outside of law enforcement or the military are willing to do that and literally put their life on the line every single day for complete strangers. Talk to me about um I hang on, let me let me jump back a little bit. I think people need to understand that when you're a when you're a first responder, and this is coming from someone that's never done first responding work, that you never really know what you're walking into. So there is that element of stress in terms of, well, I've got this call out, but realistically, is that is it what they've told the dispatcher? And what am I walking into? Particularly if it's a domestic violence situation, it's probably the most volatile or, you know, and I know obviously with your firearm laws over there, things are <laughs> even more more escalated and stressful yes. compared to if you're in Australia. But I, there's that element as well in terms of the everyday stress. But you touched on the shooting, so let's let's delve into that because I know that you're you're limited in regards to time. How long had you been on the force for prior to the to the incident? So basically, I I was a new sergeant. I had just been promoted in November of 2012, so I was on the force for about eight years as a civilian sworn police officer. And that's in addition to almost six and a half years as a security forces member and as an Air Force captain. And this incident actually happened. My shift started the day after Christmas. At that time, I worked what's called the graveyard shift. It was a 10-hour shift that started at 9.30 p.m. at night, and we got off at 7.30 in the morning. And during that time, I mean, my life was absolutely perfect. Like I said, I had just gotten promoted my career was on track. I was happily married. I had a beautiful two and a half year old daughter. Um, I just bought my dream house. I was in good health. My entire family was in good health. I mean, literally, I couldn't think of a negative thing that was going on in my life. And I remember going to work that day, just feeling really upbeat and positive because it was our Friday. We were going to be off for four days after we ended this shift. And typically, Shifts after Christmas or around the holidays are pretty slow and they're uneventful. We were at minimum staffing. When I got to work, everyone was in a good mood. There was an overlapping patrol team with a lieutenant, but they were only on for a few hours. And they went home, I think around like 1230 in the morning, maybe 1 a.m. at the latest. And at that time, I was the only supervisor on for the entire city. And I had my patrol officers And a little bit after 3 a.m., and now we're literally like four and a half hours from being off duty and off for the weekend, this 
hours of silence that had gone on because nothing was happening. The dispatcher, female dispatcher, came on the radio extremely frantic. I mean, her voice was like nothing I'd ever heard her sound like before. Usually she was very calm and put together. And she started screaming into the radio that there was a woman inside a condominium or apartment and there was a subject with a knife. At that point, I heard the address. I literally started driving there as fast as I could. The other officers are answering up, saying they're responding. And halfway there, the dispatcher gets on the air again and says, now the boyfriend and girlfriend are barricaded inside a bedroom. And I was confused. I wasn't sure if the boyfriend was the one with a knife or if there was a third party or third subject with a knife. And so I asked on the radio and the dispatcher clarified. She said, no, there's a third subject with a knife. And so at this point, I mean, literally my adrenaline's pumping. I'm imagining just horrific scenes. I'm trying to get to the location. I know the street. I know the general area. But this isn't a big condominium complex. It's two-story attached condominiums on all sides. And so I don't know where this exact unit is. I just know where the complex is. As I pull up on scene, I'm first on scene. I start to open my car door and the dispatcher starts screaming, saying, units, units, there's a struggle, there's a struggle. And then she says she lost all contact inside the condominium. And as that's happening, I can hear blood curling screams coming from the distance. I can hear a female voice. Literally, it sounds like she's dying or being killed. And at the same time, another officer, a female officer, pulls up right behind me. And we literally look at each other and we just start running towards the screams. We have to crawl underneath an outside stairwell. We get into this open courtyard and there's just condominiums on all sides. We find the unit and it goes dead silent, literally from these blood curling screams to just eerie silence. And we didn't see anybody outside at all. No other noises, no other sounds. And we're announcing ourselves, you know, please come out, show us your hands. And there's nothing, no movement inside the house. We don't hear any noises. My partner notices a huge window, a louvered window the size of a door, and it's completely shattered into the condominium. And so we, again, announce ourselves, and we've got to get in there. We don't know what's happening with this couple. We have to try to save their life. And so we go in. We clear the downstairs. We don't see any obvious signs of a struggle other than that window that's broken. Again, announcing ourselves, no one's saying anything. I mean, there's no noise. We get to the bottom of the stairwell. It's just my partner and I. We have our guns out. They're pointed up the stairwell. Again, announcing ourselves, saying, come out with your hands up. And eventually, a male subject partially comes out at the top of the stairwell, but we can't see the entire right side of his body. He's sweating profusely. His eyes are wide open. He looks like a zombie. He's literally staring straight through us as if we're not there. And again, we're, we're saying now, show us your hands, show us your hands. And there is no reaction, no facial expression, no eye movement, no body movement. I mean, literally no reaction. Moments later, he comes out a little bit more. My partner yells, he's got a knife. He's got a knife. And we look in his right hand. He's clenching a full-size butcher knife. At this point, guns are still out. We're yelling, drop the knife, drop the knife. No reaction at all. And suddenly, he takes the knife up over his head in the stabbing position and starts coming at us. And we shoot. We didn't know if we hit him. We didn't know what happened. He's now at the bottom of the stairs. I backed up. Two of the officers, at this point, two other officers have come to the scene. 
Two of the officers retreated into a nearby room. Another male officer who had the taser, he tried to tase him, but it missed. He's now to my side, and we both have our guns out, and we don't see any blood. We don't see any injuries, and this subject is still clenching this butcher knife in his right hand, and we know he's between us and the couple upstairs, and we've got to get to them. We don't know if they're bleeding out or dying, and so we're yelling, drop the knife, drop the knife, and he starts coming back up with a knife, and we shoot. And there's no no nice way to say it, but he was killed instantly, literally killed right in front of me. Eventually, after we checked for vitals and there were none, we had officers go upstairs. And it turns out that this subject had been stabbing through the bedroom door with this butcher knife and the door was coming off the hinges. And this couple was physically barricading the door with their bodies trying to prevent him from coming in. And thank God we got there and we did because I know for a fact they would be dead had we not gotten there and we did. No doubt. Did they know the person or was it just a random crazy person? So we didn't know this at the time, but we later found out that actually the subject with the knife was one of the roommates that lived there. And I'll try to make it quick, but the the backstory that we found out was there was three males that lived in this two-story condominium. And this was right after Christmas, so one of them was still with his family away. And earlier that night, the one roommate, the victim, had his girlfriend over, and the three of them were all hanging out, the suspect, the boyfriend, and the girlfriend. And there was no history of any problems between these people. There was no history of mental illness or anything with this the suspect. He had no police contacts, no criminal history. They were hanging out, watching movies, having a good time, eating. At some point, the boyfriend and girlfriend go up to their room, and the boyfriend's playing his Xbox or video game. The girlfriend falls asleep on his lap, and hours later, after 3 a.m., the the male roommate, the suspect, just comes into their bedroom. Same look they describe, eyes wide open, sweating profusely, non-responsive, jumps on the bed and starts trying to strangle to death the other roommate. And thank God... The boyfriend and girlfriend were able to wrestle him off and get him downstairs and outside the condo, but they locked him out, ran upstairs, barricaded themselves, and that's when they called 911. And that's when the suspect broke through that window, and the kitchen was right there. He opened a drawer, pulled out this butcher knife, and headed straight up to their bedroom door. So do you have body camera cameras on for this whole incident? So at that time, we didn't have body cameras. Our agency now does have body cameras, but this was December of 2012. And many agencies back then did not have body cameras like they do now. So this sounds like a fairly open and shut case. You're protecting somebody that's brandishing a weapon, threatening you, and has threatening and and attempted murder in terms of the occupants inside the – from my non-legal standpoint – Uh, How can – like, who sues you for that? So the family members of the man we killed filed a federal lawsuit, and that lawsuit drug on for four years. And so, Is this criminal or civil? It was a civil lawsuit. They sued the city, you know, the mayor, the police chief, all the officers involved. Uh, But by the time it actually went to trial – they actually the two myself and the other male officer were the only defendants in this trial and the other two female officers became witnesses because 
they weren't involved in the second volley of shots. They were only involved in the first volley of shots. And, you know, this is the thing is that after this incident, I started having constant nightmares. I started isolating. I literally, you know, was drinking myself to sleep every night. I I literally felt like I had no one I could talk to. And, And this event that I wanted to forget about, I couldn't because we had to go through depositions every year for four years. And I had to remember every finite detail of that night because I knew everything was on the line. So are you? Do you have insurance against something like this into, as a police officer? So I didn't have insurance, but the way it worked then is that the city, um, the city of Walnut Creek, they have an insurance policy and they call it like a municipal uh, pooling authority where other cities or counties, they join in and they contribute money to be insured. So in this case, we had insurance, but there's a process behind it. And in this case, the city council, they had a closed session and they had to actually vote whether or not they were going to defend this lawsuit because they could have not defended it and we would have been left on our own. And so um, thank God in this case, the city unanimously, they voted you know, that they were going to defend us. And and they did. And we had great attorneys. Uh, my lead attorney, I'm, I'm very good friends with today. Amazing, amazing man. Um, but yeah, so, you know, but even given that, it doesn't change the stress. It doesn't mm. change the fact that I'm still being sued. You know, they're they're insured, the city's insured, but I'm not insured. So, so how does that work, though? If you've got insurance through the city, does that mean that if you lose the case, you're then liable to pay out of your pocket or would the city cover it? No, since the city voted to defend us, they would be responsible for it. But in reality, it would be that insurance company that they pay into. They would be the ones that would be paying out. Hmm. So if you're isolating and you've got court cases coming, like going on, are you able to, you mentioned that you can't discuss this with anybody, but is that because you're isolating or is that because there's a court case going on and you can't talk to the witnesses about it because you don't want to be seen to be interfering with the process? Well, so there's a lot of different factors here, but when the, the shooting first happened, there's the first, uh, what you'd call criminal investigation. So where the district attorney, they get involved and, you know, you're being investigated for murder. I mean, yeah, it was justifiable, but the, you go through a full investigation, you're interrogated, they collect evidence. And so there's that process going on. And, and because of that process, I was specifically ordered by my chief not to discuss the incident, the shooting incident with anybody. And on top of that, they had an IA investigation or an internal affairs investigation where my own agency was running a parallel investigation to ensure that no policies or procedures were violated. And then on top of both of those things, we were sued. So, you know, the facts are that in reality, there is a few people I could have talked to. I could have talked to a clinician like a psychologist or a therapist. There's a protected communication there, a clergy person. But I didn't, at that time in my career, I didn't believe in using those resources. I didn't have those established relationships. And so I literally felt alone. You know, I couldn't talk to my friends about it. I couldn't talk to my coworkers or my fellow police officers about it. And literally I felt like I was on, on an island. 
And I felt like literally there was nowhere I could go. There was no one I could turn to. And I started suffering inside and it started affecting my marriage. It started affecting my physical health, my mental health. And there was an extreme domino effect where it, it led to a lot of negative things in my life and bad decisions. When you're saying it led to bad decisions and a domino effect, what were some of those bad decisions? Well, I'll just go to the extreme. And, and the main one was that I got to the point where I didn't want to be here anymore. Right. I literally started putting myself purposely in dangerous situations, hoping I got killed in the line of duty or I died so on the job. So you're still working at this stage. You're not on administration leave with pay or anything. You're still out in the streets dealing with this stress and then a stressful job. So I was I was only off on admin leave for two weeks. And wow. we all wanted to go to work, back to work right away. You know, that that's the thing is that we're like, okay, let's get through this. Let's get back to work. That's what we did. And so carry that on after those two weeks for four years. Yes, I'm still working full time. I'm still being exposed to hundreds more traumatic incidents, mm. you know, fatal car accidents, domestic violence, suicides, homicides, even just natural deaths, you know, even incidents where I almost shoot other people, other incidents where I encounter people with knives. And so, and that's the thing is that, you know, it's trauma on top of trauma on top of trauma. The trauma is literally endless. I read somewhere that you um, felt that the department turned its back on you. How so? Because I would have thought that going through the internal investigation would have been just part of process and policy. Why did you feel betrayed by the department? So the betrayal came in actually down the road after I tried to get help. So the department was extremely supportive during the shooting incident, during the investigation, during the federal lawsuit. I mean, they they supported us hundred percent. The betrayal came in later. So the, the breaking point, and you know, I don't want to give away the whole the whole stories or the whole incidents, <laughs> but there was basically my trial ended September 2016. That same year in November, about a week after Thanksgiving, one of my best friends, his name is John Davison. He actually has his own chapter in my book where he talks about his story. He was a Vietnam veteran. He was an army military police officer. And he was also a 35-year reserve police officer with my agency. And he tried to kill himself when I was on duty. And so that incident actually saved my life because a month after that is when I finally got the strength and courage to ask for help after four years of suffering. And initially, my agency was extremely supportive and were giving me all the resources that I needed and giving me the time off. The betrayal came five months into my recovery where I was still working on my progress, still trying to get better because my whole goal was to go back to work. And at that point, I had an administrator who told me that I should think about retiring. And I was baffled because since being a child, this is all I knew. This is all I wanted to do. And I was very good at it. I mean, I had a very successful career. My career was off the charts. I had gotten every promotion I, I wanted, every position, and I wanted to be chief of police someday. And now I had an administrator who literally was trying to talk me into leaving the force. And that, after that, started a whole chain of events of further administrative betrayal with investigations and allegations and 
things that I go into great detail in my book. And I call this administrative betrayal. And so imagine this. We have childhood trauma. We have repeated work trauma on top of that. And now we have administrative betrayal where our work family, the ones that we thought have our back to the fullest, in this case, my blue family, literally turns their back when I need them most. And so you take that trauma on top of all of that. And that's what pushes people over the edge. It's oftentimes not the traumatic incident itself, but it's the lack of support or the betrayal after the incident that pushes people over the edge. Do they know did they know why the housemate snapped? We don't know. We actually so the first thing we want to do is see what drugs were on board. You know, yeah. what was this guy using? What was he doing? And so we did every blood lab test imaginable. I mean, through our county crime lab to private labs across the country. And the first thing they detected was THC or from marijuana. And there was a thought that it could have been drug-induced psychosis from marijuana. It's rare, but it does happen. It's a fact. And his roommates had said that, and other friends, that he had used MDMA or ecstasy in, in the last couple of weeks or so. His roommate said he might have been smoking sage. But also, there's all kinds of synthetic drugs. And, and I worked two years undercover on a California State Drug Task Force. And so drugs is one of my areas of expertise. And even to this day, there are always new synthetic drugs that are undetectable that are coming out. And so we don't know if it was some kind of synthetic drug or if he literally just had a mental break and a mental snap. But but that's what makes it so difficult is that, you know, here in 2022, 10 years after this incident, none of us know and will never know why this young man did what he did. And that's what makes this so difficult is that I have to live with the fact that I took a human life. It doesn't matter that it was justified. I mean, this was a good young man until that night, until that moment, until that incident, until something happened. And I was forced to defend myself, my officers, and the couple upstairs. But I have well, to live with this. Through through the investigative process and the civil trial, were your fellow officers and the victims supportive of your actions? Yes, absolutely. We were okay. Well that's we helpful in terms of processing it, I think, mentally. Well yeah, we I mean we were cleared from the district attorney, we were cleared from the internal affairs investigation. Um, we all received a distinguished service medal for our heroic actions for saving lives that night. So our agency, our community, our officers, the victims were all extremely supportive. And during the trial, the victims testified. They got on the stand and talked about what happened that night. Still doesn't help the reality of the burden. No, and it that's the thing is that, you know, the public, they don't realize how these things affect us. They think that we just go from one incident to the next and we go on with our lives. But there's also a misconception about police shootings because if you were to watch the news here in the United States, you would think that most officers are involved in police shootings at some point. But it's not the case. Literally, most officers are never involved in a fatal police shooting. And it can happen anytime, anywhere. 
and it happened to me and it will affect me for the rest of my life. Considering the um, change in terms of mindset that the public has against the um, police force and more so in America, but I think it's also, um, well, it's happened in Victoria after the lockdowns, I can can assure you from that. where do you think – how do you think it can be turned around in terms of winning the trust back? Because if you lower the standards to get people in, you're then creating more problems because they're probably not the right caliber of person you want in the job, but you need people in that job to start off with. But people don't of good quality don't want to go to work because people – why would you want to go to a job that people hate you all the time? So it's sort of this vicious cycle. Do, can you see a way out of it in terms of fixing the problem? I do. And I I think actually that myself and Dr. Springer are part of the solution because in our book, Relentless Courage, you know, one of the things that's happened as a result of this is that it's showing the human side behind the, the uniform, behind the badge. It's changing the public's perception of who we are as all first responders. So I'm talking about firefighters, paramedics, dispatchers, but especially police officers. It's letting them see us in a different light, who we truly are, because they just see a uniform. They see somebody who's not showing emotion, who comes in and has to take charge of a situation. They don't realize how much these incidents and traumatic events affect us and they affect our health. They affect our relationships, our families. And we deal with all the stuff that they deal with on top of the work trauma. And so part of the solution is that we, as first responders, and especially as law enforcement, we need to do a better job in educating the public and making them informed into what we do, why we do it, how it affects us, like showing the true people that we are. And and, and I'm taking ownership of that, saying that we need to do that better. How did the four years of the investigation and lawsuit affect your marriage? Well, I lost my marriage. So you did. Okay. Um, I started having issues with my marriage about two months after the shooting. And at that time, I made mistakes. And I talk about this in the book. But early on, before I became a civilian police officer, I made a conscious decision that I would never bring work home. I thought I was protecting my family by not talking about the job. And I'm not talking about gritty details, but I made a mistake about communication because what happens is if we don't talk about and express and share things that are going on with us and how things are affecting us, our loved ones, our partners, they're going to assume it's them. So we come home and we're pissed off and we're in a bad mood. They're not going to realize that maybe it was that horrible car accident that I went to where I saw a girl, you know, bleeding out, laying in the crosswalk. They're going to think that they did something wrong. They're going to blame themselves. And so what I should have done early on in my career is opened up that communication process And talked about when I was having difficult times, talked about when I had a rough day, expressing the needs of like, hey, you know, I need some time to decompress. Just give me a little time and and we'll get back together and I can talk to you about this or share how my day was. But so when my big incident happened and it pushed me over the edge, I didn't have that established relationship with my spouse. And so I didn't turn to her. I didn't open up to her. And when it got to the point where I was so desperate, fearing that I was going to lose my marriage, I finally decided to open up to her. But it was too late. 
at that point, she was detached. She wasn't there for me. She didn't understand it. She didn't get it. And then I had to go through a nightmare divorce, you know, fighting for custody of my daughter that drug on for years in the middle of all this. I mean, again, trauma on top of trauma. And this is where I'm talking about the personal life trauma, you know, that we all deal with in addition to the work-related trauma. How did the book come about? Because it's very um, very transparent in the book. So how did that all come about? So it's actually kind of a cool story. Um, before COVID, Dr. Shauna Springer, I didn't know her. She saw me on LinkedIn. We're both on LinkedIn. I'm, I'm kind of an influencer. I'm always posting things on post-traumatic stress, suicide prevention, you know, resiliency. And so she reached out to me and said, hey, can we have a phone call? And I was like, sure, yeah, let's do this. And I, and I typically accept those offers. And so she called me up and she just wanted to explain the work that she was doing uh, with a procedure called stellate ganglion block, which is a medical procedure to treat the physical symptoms of post-traumatic stress. And during our phone conversation, I kind of shared my story and my shooting, some other things that were going on. And she told me that she actually used to work with combat veterans, first responders. She worked for the U.S. Veterans Affairs uh, for the Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors here in the United States. And so she's a culturally competent clinician. She truly understands military folks and first responders. And during our conversation, she asked me, have you ever thought about writing a book? And I, I kind of laughed, but I said, you know, I have been asked that before and I've kind of thought about it, but I said, post-traumatic stress is really, it's wreaked havoc and I don't have the focus. I don't have the concentration that I used to. I don't manage stress like I used to. And I just don't think I can get a project like that done. So we left the conversation at that. A couple months later, she reaches back out to me and she says, look, your story, it's just, it's sticking with me. She's like, I've heard hundreds and hundreds of trauma stories, but your story, it's going to, it's going to help countless people. It's going to save lives. And she said, I want to make this project happen for you. I want to do this book with you. And I knew at that exact moment, I didn't hesitate. I knew she was the right one. I said, let's do this. And the, the funny thing was, is that, so COVID happens and we didn't actually physically meet in person for like a year and a half. So we so we did really? this wow. whole process through Zoom meetings. We had Zoom meetings like every week, two hours long. And it, you know, and the thing is, this this took a toll on me. I mean, I, I go all the way back to childhood to present day. I go very deep into a lot of very traumatic incidents. But the fact that I had a psychologist who I was doing this with that would check in with me before and after every session. We have a friendship where I could call her day or night. And that really made this project feasible. It, it made it happen. And this book, it's it's groundbreaking. It's innovative. And it's different than anything I've seen. And the format is very simple. Um, there's about 15 or 16 chapters. Every chapter is split into two distinct parts. The first part is my story told in my voice all the way back to childhood till present day. But the second part of every chapter, Doc Springer breaks everything down. She explains it in layman's terms so that anybody and everybody, whether you're a first responder or just somebody on the street, you're going to truly understand the human behind the badge. You're truly going to understand the toll of the job and how these things affect our mental health 
our physical health, our relationships, our family. I mean, this book is, I'm biased, of course, but it's saving lives. This book is absolutely saving lives. Talk to me, uh, so that just the, it's Relentless Courage, Winning the Battle Against Frontline Trauma. So you can get that where Amazon? It's only available on Amazon. There's a hardcover, a paperback, and it's on Kindle. But okay. the book is only available on Amazon. Okay, perfect. Um, talk to me about this treatment, the block, the PTSI treatment that you were talking about, gang- ganglia something. So it's called SGB for short or stellate ganglion block. And first I want to say I'm not a doctor. I'm not a physician. Uh, but this is I not have medical this... advice. <laughs> exactly. I, <laughs> yeah. I, I have had this done. Um, so I'm going to do my best to describe it. So um, this actually procedure has been around for over 100 years, but it was first designed for like pain blocks to control pain. And it's been used for a very long time. And what it is is that a anesthesiologist, a medical doctor – takes an anesthetic, um, in this case, a very common one that is often used for like childbirth and labor and delivery, and they inject it under imaging so they know exactly where it's going in a specific bundle of nerves in your neck. And that bundle of nerves controls your amygdala, which is your primitive brain, and that's what causes the fight or flight symptoms. That That's what causes the feeling of anxiety or panic. It causes the the sweating, the anger the feeling of wanting to run away. And the whole process, it's designed to reduce those physical symptoms. Now, it's not a cure-all. This does not cure post-traumatic stress. But what it does do is it lessens the physical symptoms so that you then can work on what you need to work on, whether that's going to see a therapist, go to like first responder support meetings, go to a week-long retreat for post-traumatic stress, do EMDR, equine therapy. I mean, there's all kinds of things you can do. But again, it's not to cure post-traumatic stress. It's to get you to the point physically where you can actually open up and work on the things that you need to work on. So you need to follow up this procedure by seeing a therapist, a clinician, a psychologist. In fact, when you go do this procedure, they don't ask you about your trauma. I mean, you're not there to to relive your stories and trauma. It is, is literally... It's a, it's a medical procedure to treat the physical symptoms. It takes like 10 minutes. It's wow. painless. And the effective rate, I believe, is around 85%. So usually they do a, a right side injection. And if you – you'll usually feel a difference within right away up to two hours and then up to like two weeks after that as far as different things that are coming out. And it can last anywhere from six months to – a few years for different people. Now, if the right side injection doesn't work, then they advise that you go back in either the next day or a couple days after and you get a left side injection. And when you combine the right side and left side injection, I believe the effective rate is 85% where people see a noticeable reduction in the physical symptoms of post-traumatic stress. Did you ever look in doing um, the psych... The, um... Was it the psilocybin or whatever, the psychoactive treatments that they're using for PTSI now? I have not used that. Um, I know people that have used that or ketamine is a big one. Um, I know people personally that have done ketamine. And so it's good that you asked that because there's not one magic thing that works for everybody. In Mm. my recovery from post-traumatic stress, and I started my recovery in 2017, 
you know, there's a lot of different things that I tried, some things that worked, some things that didn't. And I talk about this in detail in my book, but you have to be open-minded and you have to know there's going to be setbacks, good days and bad days, and you can't put all your eggs in one basket. And so, you know, that's why I want to reinforce that if there's people listening or people struggling, keep an open mind and try different things because different things work for different people. I'm conscious of the of our time. Where what are you what's next for you? You've written the book, Relentless Courage. What's next? So I speak all across the United States. Um I, I speak at conferences, I speak to different law enforcement agencies, military. I'm hoping to make that international and you know go to Canada, the UK, Come and to Australia, Michael. <laughs> Well, that's what I'm saying. Australia is actually number one on my list. So if there's anybody out there listening, uh, please reach out to me. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Facebook. Send me a message. I would love to come in Australia and, and speak because the thing is, is that first responders are suffering all around the world. And we didn't talk about this yet or address it, but the number one killer of all first responders is suicide. More First responders die by their own hands than the hands of another. And that's happening in Australia. It's happening in Canada and the UK, here in the United States. And it needs to be addressed. We need to talk about this stuff openly and we need to change the culture. And that's what I help do is I help by sharing my personal story, my struggles and showing I'm living proof that you can come out the other side of this. I mean, I'm living an amazing life better than I ever have. So just know that there is help and there is hope. Thanks, Michael. Thank you so much for your time. Everyone go out and get the books on Amazon Relentless Courage. Thank you again. Thanks for taking a moment to listen, everyone. We hope this episode inspired you as much as it did us. If you know somebody who also needs a little inspiration, then please share this podcast with them. Also, don't forget to subscribe on your fave podcast app and rate and review us because that helps inspire us to keep making them. Bye.